0: Man in the Window contains depictions of sexual violence and is not suitable for everyone. Please be advised.
1: The Santa Barbara Coast is a narrow band between ocean and mountain, where small towns hug the coastal highway. Towns like Goleta have a sleepy feeling even today. In the 1980s, It's a tight-knit community. The houses here are packed close together, and everybody knows everybody.
2: No, we were just so tight. The uh, Names, the Overbows, the Burks, everybody.
1: Julia Jacob lives here with her mother. In 1981, after guests from a backyard cookout leave, they decide to take a late-night walk.
2: Had a little barbecue, ate some tri-tip, we're feeling pudgy.
1: They head out into the dark, out into the area behind their house where the San Jose Creek cuts through the subdivision. She and her mother cross the timber bridge over the creek and up to an avocado grove. On their way back home, her mom suddenly grabs Julia's arm.
2: And I said, oh, look at the German Shepherd. And she said, no, look at the creep.
1: Her mom's eyes are fixed upon a man with a large dog. The man has neatly trimmed brown hair, and is wearing white shorts and shoes.
2: He was just a big man with big calves. A very clean, neat-appearing man. And she said, oh, he looks like a tennis player.
1: But the man is a stranger. And when he realizes Julia and her mother are watching him, he quickly turns his back to them.
2: I wonder why he's got his back turn, you know, like staring at a ficus shrub.
1: Julia's perplexed. But her mother is unsettled.
2: She goes, something's wrong. I feel it. I sense it. I'm like, mom, let's just go. Let's get out of here.
1: They hurry home.
2: So the next morning, I got up super, super early, got on my 10-speed, and I rode my bike down to East Beach and back. I came home, and our property was roped off.
1: Yellow crime scene tape stretches across the driveway, and police cars are everywhere, everywhere.
2: And I just started screaming, where's my mom, where's my mom, what happened? Big cop grabbed me and he said, let's go inside,
1: your mom's fine. The center of activity is a house across the creek, directly behind the one where they saw the strange man the night before. The sheriff's department won't tell Julia what's happened, but she's determined to find out.
2: And I immediately called uh, Medic 5 and talked to my paramedic friends, and I'm like, what the hell happened? And they said, we can't really tell you right now, but it was a double homicide. And it was brutal. Like, again?
1: This is the second double homicide in Julia's neighborhood. Just two years earlier, another couple had been shot to death in their bed. Now, Julia watches in horror as detectives trace a man's footprints from last night's murder scene across the footbridge to Julia's backyard, and then over a fence. Beside the footprints are dog tracks and drops of blood. From the Los Angeles Times and Wondery, I'm Paige St. John, and this is Man in the Window. This is episode four, Someone Else's Problem. The trail to Goleta and the double murder behind Julia Jacobs' house began two years earlier, in 1979. It's a critical moment. Police agencies still aren't taking the violence of rape seriously. Turf wars between departments escalate. As a result, the rapist operates freely and his attacks become even more brutal the law enforcement breakdowns are so great unhappy cops resort to secretly leaking tips to detectives. In Contra Costa County, 300 miles north of Santa Barbara, Sheriff's Detective Larry Crompton gets wind of one attack through this grapevine.
3: A officer with Walnut Creek called me and said, uh, we've been attacked. Don't tell anybody I called you, but I think it's your case.
1: It's a 17-year-old babysitter. It carries all the hallmarks of the other rapes. The same low, gravelly voice. The same warning, don't move or I'll cut your throat. But Crompton also notices that this rape is different.
3: She had not been babysitting at that house for two months. So I thought there's no way in the world that he could have set this up.
1: Crompton realizes this is a crime of opportunity. It just happened that he saw her and thought, oh, here we go. To Crompton, that means one thing. The East Area Rapist is actually stalking someone else. He tries to tell that to Walnut Creek.
3: And they told me, don't need your help. Uh, And I said, no, you don't understand. He's going to hit you again. This is not who he's after. said, we don't need your help. Get out of our town. We take care of our own.
1: Three weeks later, a 13-year-old girl is raped two doors down. Her whole family is asleep when the rapist slips in through her bedroom window.
3: And again, don't need your help. Don't want your help. Get out of my town.
1: Crompton has seen the rapist become more and more unstable, weeping and cursing between violent assaults, taunting his victims with death, even biting one. It's been five years, from 1974 to 1979, With hundreds of attacks in Visalia, the suburbs of Sacramento, Modesto, Davis, and the Bay, nine counties across Northern California, 50 women and girls raped or sexually assaulted, three people dead. Then, just like that, the rapes stop. And that's reason enough for Contra Costa to shut down its task force, It wasn't
3: shut down with the understanding that, uh, well, we can't afford to keep the task force going, but keep working it. It wasn't that at all. It was the task force is shut down. That's it. Now it's somebody else's problem. It's not ours.
1: Crompton will be forced to watch, hands tied, as the violence reaches a horrific level of brutality and the investigations run into the ground. Three months later... In October 1979, the East Area Rapist arrives for the first time in a small town on the Santa Barbara Coast in Goleta. It's after two in the morning. A man and a woman are asleep in their house on Queen Anne Lane when a man forces his way into their bedroom. He threatens them with a knife and demands their money. But after he binds them both with rope, he puts a pair of shorts over the woman's head and leads her blinded into the living room. She's there on the floor when she hears him in her kitchen, muttering to himself at least a dozen times. I'll kill him. She struggles to her feet and tries to find the door. She hits a wall instead, but then she's outside, and the ropes around her ankles loosen enough that she can try to run. Screaming, still blind, she hits the side of the house. And then the rapist her, hooking his thumb into her mouth to pull her back into the house, pressing a knife against her throat. He hisses, I told you to be quiet. Her boyfriend hears the commotion. He thinks the prowler has just murdered his girlfriend. He's frantic and slides off the bed and hops out the patio door. There's nowhere to go. He's trapped in a fenced yard. He does the only thing he can. He throws his body against the fence, but the boards won't break. He can hear the attacker coming, so he rolls to the ground to hide naked beneath the thorns of an orange tree. He can see the beam of the attacker's flashlight sweep the yard, searching. His girlfriend seizes the second chance to escape. She runs down the driveway, naked, screaming, and next door, a light comes on. The off-duty FBI agent who lives there sees a man run out and hop on a bicycle. The agent gives chase in his car, but the attacker drops his bike and runs between the houses. He vanishes into the dark tunnel of the creek bed. Three months later, and a few blocks away, the naked bodies of Dr. Robert Offerman and his lover, psychologist Deborah Manning, are found by Offerman's son when he comes to mow the lawn. The pair have been shot in the bedroom. Around one of the doctor's wrists is a length of rope. To police, it looks like he broke free, tried to confront his attacker, and was killed. These first deaths get little media attention beyond Santa Barbara, but they ring alarm bells for a few Northern California detectives. They recognize the handiwork of the East Area Rapist. Sacramento detective Jim Bevins tries talking with Santa Barbara about the murder and gets nowhere. Then it's Crompton's turn to try.
3: I'm calling about a double homicide you had down here where the people were tied up, and he said, no, don't know what you're talking about. Uh, no, we haven't had anything like that.
1: It's not their jurisdiction, and there's not much more the detectives can do. But months later... Crompton's at a crime class in San Diego when he spies a deputy from Santa Barbara. Over coffee, Crompton chats him up. I said, uh, you know,
3: I heard you had a double homicide down here. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, we had that. And he said, a matter of fact, we had an attempted rape where the people got away just before that.
1: Not one attack, but two? Crompton plays it cool. And I said,
3: what? I said, why didn't they tell me that? And he said, well, you got to understand. He said, "Uh, President Reagan has a ranch down here. They don't want the publicity.
1: Former California Governor Ronald Reagan is at this moment preparing his bid for the White House. The Republican National Convention is just around the corner. And the Reagan Ranch sits in the Santa Ynez Mountains right above Calida. Galita is in the national spotlight. News crews have come hoping to see Reagan in his white cowboy hat. Rape and murder don't fit the picture. While everyone else's attention is on Reagan, Bevins and Crompton finally get their hands on the reports of the Galita killer. And when they do,
3: Jim Bevins and I went over them and said, this is the same person.
1: Maybe, finally, their agencies will rekindle the joint investigation.
3: My department said, no, it isn't. It's not him, and uh, that's it.
1: In Sacramento, Bevins convinces his boss, Lieutenant Ray Root, to at least consider the possibility that the rapist and the killer are the same man, even if he doesn't want it to be true. For Root, it's a point of professional pride. It would be embarrassing if his department had failed to stop a rapist who was now killing people in another county. I did not want it
4: to be the guy. We want to catch him. It's our people who have been assaulted. You know, it's kind of a slap in the face that he goes someplace else unless we could show that we scared him out of town or whatever.
1: The Santa Barbara sheriff drives up to Sacramento for a powwow on whether the two counties should launch a joint investigation. That's what Bevins wants. But Root tells the sheriffs, don't do it. He's come to the conclusion that these two attackers are not the same man. The East Area Rapist was too good at what he did. He would never let his victims run out of the house or break free of their bonds.
4: He hadn't done that before. And I just didn't see our guy losing control like that.
1: Root gives the Santa Barbara sheriff a warning.
4: you want to link it, this is what you're going to get. You're going to get a hundred newspaper people sitting on your front steps, TV cameras up and down your streets. Every reporter worth their salt wants to solve the case. What good would it do to identify it as the East Area Rapist? All it would do is sell newspapers, You provided there's no evidence, no where to go with it.
1: Besides, Lieutenant Root knows what his boss, Sheriff Wayne Lowe, will say.
4: Dwayne Lowe didn't want more publicity that our rapist went to Santa Barbara
1: Sheriff Dwayne Lowe will be running for re-election in two years
4: it was a political
1: hot potato and
4: the best way is not to handle a hot potato
1: again the rapist gets a pass the next day there's a second double murder it's now March 1980 and the killing is in Ventura, the county just south of Santa Barbara. A lawyer and his wife, Lyman and Charlene Smith, bludgeoned to death in their bed with a fireplace log. Three more murders follow in Orange County, Keith and Patrice Harrington and Manuela Withun. Again, all are bludgeoned to death. All the while, he's perfecting his technique. Guns make too much noise, so he switches to bludgeoning bludgeoning leaves too much blood, so he covers the heads with a blanket before he crushes their skulls. He begins to strip evidence from the crime scene, taking the murder weapon and the ropes used to bind his victims. Then, in September 1981, he turns north once more to Santa Barbara County, to a subdivision in Goleta, where Julia Jacob and her mother live. On the night of July 26. 1981 the rampage begins a few hours after julia sees a strange man loitering in her neighborhood the killer begins by slipping into house after house to steal rings he vaults fences peers through windows and attacks a dog his calling card crimes then the violence escalates At the last house, he grabs a pry bar and a heavy pipe wrench from the shed. He watches through the bedroom window as Sherry Domingo and her boyfriend, Greg Sanchez, have sex. Just after three in the morning, he enters their house. With a savage blow, he crushes Sherry Domingo's skull, killing her instantly. And then he hits her in the head nine more times. As Greg Sanchez kneels on the bed, the attacker shoots him in the face. The bullet knocks Greg to the floor, but it doesn't kill him. Greg rises to his feet, and the killer clubs him 24 blows to the head. He dies on the floor. Afterwards, he takes time to clean up. He removes the victim's bindings. He stops to wipe some of the blood on the kitchen towel and hang it back up by the stove. He leaves behind a half-eaten slice of cake on the counter next to an open can of RC Cola. The blood-spattered bedroom and the crushed bodies of his victims mark the apex of violence for the killer. Santa Barbara is a small department Detective Fred Ray is assigned to this murder, and right away, he figures this killing stands out.
5: See, I had a feeling that this case was not a local case. I went right away to the Ventura case, and I could see that there was a connection.
1: Like Richard Shelby, Jim Bevins, and Larry Crompton before him, he connects this murder to other attacks and realizes there's a serial murderer operating in Southern California. But once again, neighboring sheriff's departments shoot this theory down. It's frustrating. Sure it was. Yeah,
5: you just deal with it. You know, it's just par for the course.
1: By now, there are 105 victims, including 12 murders. But instead of looking for a serial killer, Santa Barbara is searching for a way, any way, to close the case. Coastline north of Goleta was wild and undeveloped. Haskell's Beach is a special place, a large sandy cove held sacred by the Chumash Indians who buried their dead here. In the 1980s, it's the summer home to a group of tan surfers who claim the cove as their own. The Haskell's locals, or Locos as they call themselves, sleep beneath driftwood lean-tos and boil crabs for dinner, spend their days chasing waves and smoking pot.
6: We're all friends that would drink beer and smoke pot and laugh and surf and
1: just enjoy the time around each other. Greg Glasby, one of the originals, says it's friendly unless the surf's up and then the beach belongs to the locos. Of course, there was times we got
6: territorial and sometimes people did get maybe punched or something like that, you know. I don't think anyone got really severely beaten.
1: Julia Jacob grew up in the same neighborhood as the Glasby brothers and held a secret crush on Brett's brother, Brian.
2: I just remember every time he drove by, my heart would just
1: thump out of my chest because he's so darn adorable. The youngest, Brett a thickly-built 20-year-old with an established tough-guy reputation.
2: Oh, he was a hellion, but nothing... To me, it was just he was a naughty boy, just being a naughty boy.
6: If you ask a lot of people that knew him, they loved him, you know? Some, some people didn't like him because maybe he stole their marijuana or cocaine or whatever. But he, he actually was really a fun
1: person to be around. It's small-time stuff. Until the night, Greg and Brett and two other guys storm a large marijuana growing operation. They think the illegal growers won't call the cops, but they do. A patrolling deputy catches the would-be marijuana thieves hiding out behind the public library. Brett's accused of pointing a shotgun at the grower they tried to rob. While he's waiting for a court date, he and his brother make a fatal decision. He decides it's a good time to take one last trip.
6: They left because Brett, uh, he had a public defender. The public defender told him, hey, you better bring your toothbrush because you're going to prison.
1: They head south to Mexico in a pistachio green van packed with Brian's surfboard and fishing gear to a tiny remote village in Michoacan, San Juan de Alima. Only a few weeks later, children from the Pueblo find the two brothers gunned down on the isolated beach. Brett dead and Brian dying. Rumors fly that they're killed in a drug deal gone sour, but Greg Glasby doesn't buy it. I think that they did buy a little bit of marijuana,
6: maybe half a pound to smoke. Cause we were, I mean, we were chronic weed smokers at that time but to go score like that, uh uh-uh.
1: There's no way in hell that that's right. No way. Brett and Brian's killers are never caught. Two Santa Barbara deputies say they hear the killers died in a shootout with Mexican federales. And that's as far as the investigation goes. Instead of investigating the brothers' murders, the Santa Barbara sheriff begins to look at Brett Glasby, as a suspect in the Goleta Creek killings. Sheriff's detectives go to the morgue to confirm that the bullet-riddled body carried back from Mexico is Brett's. They get a search warrant to go through the Glaspie family house.
6: It was pretty, pretty traumatic in the sense. I mean, you just wake up to the cops at your door and they're saying, we're going to search your house.
1: The officers dig through a box of Brett's old tennis shoes, they're hunting for a pair that'll match the prints found outside the homes of the murdered couples. They don't find any. And they try to link Brett to the bullet that was found at the crime scene. Despite the lack of clear evidence tying Brett to the murder, at least some cops seem to think they've wrapped up the Galita double homicides. One deputy tells Julia Jacob, We got our guy. It's over. Julia's surprised. She asks, Who is it?
2: Well, he's dead. He was killed in Mexico. That's what they were saying.
1: But Julia's not buying it. She's certain that the man she saw with the German shepherd that night wasn't Brett Glasby. Time and again, she tells the cops this. And for Brett's family, there's a heavy cost. Soon after his brother's death, they pack up and leave town most
6: likely put my mom and dad in their early graves. I'm sure it haunted them both for their
1: lifetime. Greg believes police were more than happy with the outcome.
6: They just wanted that problem to go away, and it was easy for for a scapegoat.
5: That's what I believe. They tried to kiss the case off on Gladsby, but nobody would listen to me.
1: Detective Fred Ray also doesn't think a local stoner is behind the gruesome murders. As an experienced
5: investigator, I never thought that Brett Gillespie had anything to do with this case, and there was never any evidence, and I knew they were going in the wrong
1: direction. But once again, department politics get in the way. There's a new major crimes chief, one who's promised to close the case quickly, and Ray is ordered to back off. I was told I was going to get
5: kicked out if I didn't leave him alone, if I didn't leave the problem alone, trying to stop the the Gladspeed thing.
1: So he buries himself in other cases. New officers join the department who don't know about the double homicide. Among them, Kim Stewart. One night, Stewart responds to a call about a prowler and is surprised when half the department seems to show up. So I go to this location, and the field supervisor rolls up. He goes, you know why we're sitting here,
0: don't you? I have no idea. He said, well, Nate tells me the story of these four homicides.
1: The call was in the same neighborhood.
0: I remember that so vividly. It was a very windy, you know, that Santa Ana wind night, they had big eucalyptus trees in that area but the winds blowing and howling. And I'm thinking, this is one scary thing happening here.
1: Stuart realizes this is a neighborhood living in fear.
0: And they were so frightened, the residents. People, number one, started getting dogs, buying dogs. So if you go through that neighborhood at that point, it was just a cacophony of dogs barking. Second of all, they put up... Signs in their yard saying, we are married, because he
1: only went to unmarried couples there. Everyone in the neighborhood is clearly on high alert, but Stewart doesn't hear anyone at the department talking about the investigation. No, no mention of it. Nothing. In 1985, she approaches one of the detectives working on the double homicide, and he tells her the same thing that Julia Jacob was told that the case is solved. He won't even let her see the case files. Oh, no, no, we know who did that. We know who did that. I said, really, you do? Yeah, who, who did it? Oh, Brett Glasby did it. It's a brush off, but one that doesn't surprise Detective Stewart. The local sheriff's department has its own way of handling things, especially rape cases. Male investigators won't handle them. The department's unwritten rule is that rape reports go to female officers, whether it's their beat or not. Stewart routinely hears investigators talk dismissively about women who are raped coming home from a bar. Like, what do they expect? And the department rarely publicizes rapes. You know, don't you think you ought to put
0: something out once in a while, these gals are leaving parties drunk? Oh no, 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 we don't do that. She keeps pressing. And I finally got one of the command
1: personnel. He tells her there's an agreement with the local board of realtors.
0: That we would never put out that kind of information because it would drive down property value.
1: Property values. And because the department doesn't speak publicly about what went on in the Goleta Creek murders, it will be a long time before anyone outside the department even knows that these murders were not just murders. They were the work of a rapist. And because of that, it will be decades before the killings in Santa Barbara will be connected to all the other cases across California. It will be years before Southern California detectives tell the public what went on in the Goleta Creek murders. At the time, police are adamant there are no signs of sexual assault, not on Deborah Manning nor on Sherry Domingo.
4: I'm not the least bit surprised to hear, especially in older autopsies.
1: Dr. William Green worked in Sacramento at the height of the attacks by the East Area Rapist. After watching the haphazard way evidence is collected, He went on to write the definitive textbook on forensic rape, which transformed the way rape investigations are handled. But at the time, he says, it wasn't uncommon for coroners to miss the signs of rape, to not see. There's a little tear here, or we recovered semen from here. There's not even a record of a rape kit in the coroner's report for the first Glita victim.
4: Do you know the acronym WNL? It's a medical abbreviation. Well, technically it stands for Within Normal Limits. We have another version of that for WNL. It's We Never Looked.
1: The coroner does check for semen on the body of the second victim, Sherry Domingo. But when they find it, they attribute it to her boyfriend, even though there are signs that there is something else mixed in. In fact, the coroner suggests that the semen found on Domingo is mixed with what he calls non secretor material, semen from someone who doesn't secrete blood antigens, the same uncommon genetic trait as the East Area Rapist. In all these murders, detectives insist publicly there are no signs of sexual assault, not on Charlene Smith, not on Manuela Withoon, not on Patrice Harrington, not on Sherry Domingo or Deborah Manning. And detectives now working on all five cases are united in insisting they're unrelated. The investigators go their own ways, looking at burglars, former business partners, ex-lovers. The investigation is at a low point. A few months later, it sinks even lower. In May 1986, an 18-year-old woman, home alone in Irvine, is bound, raped, and murdered. She is the rapist's 13th murder victim in 11 years. Meanwhile, up north, the hunt for the East Area Rapist is at a standstill. Sacramento County's task force once consisted of 37 officers now there's only one. The 3-year statute of limitations on rape has long expired when Lieutenant Root gets a complaint. The evidence room is full. They have to clean house.
4: So we had panties bras uh rape kits from each and every one of those. That's a lot of evidence. Yeah. You know? Sheets, blankets, whatever we might have got DNA spilled on. But still, the property uh, evidence said they had too much stuff. Should have taken it home myself, I guess.
1: Root says, throw it away. But there's still the stuff in the crime lab, including the rape kit swabs. And forensic science is about to make it possible to catch a killer who leaves behind only his semen the first criminal conviction based on DNA won't be until 1987. But Sacramento Sheriff's Lieutenant Ray Root remembers hearing about the scientific advances even before that.
4: We knew of DNA towards the latter part of the series. And the crime lab claimed they didn't have the equipment to test for that kind of thing. Turned out they did. They didn't know how to work it. And then... We got that trick of the statute of limitations.
1: So Root approves the disposal of the DNA evidence, too.
4: Statute of limitations. What are you going to do about that?
1: Little mistake. <laughs> the last bit of evidence is in the coroner's office. In 1992, a new coroner brings it up during a middle management meeting. I'm rearranging
6: stuff. I'm out of storage space. I've got this little vial of, if rape sperm, I'm going to throw away.
1: He mentioned it twice, if not three times. Inspector Richard Shelby is in the room. It's been years since he was actively working on the case, but here it is to pull him back in. This time, he resists.
6: I thought, no, my wife doesn't want that thing in her freezer. I should have held on either, so I just left it.
1: The evidence is tossed.
6: Do over. I would take it and go rent his freezer someplace fight a small one, somehow I'd do it. Because they could have tested it then for DNA, they just wouldn't do it.
1: All that remains are some backup rape kits in Contra Costa, sitting forgotten in a dusty warehouse, waiting for the day someone will open the kits, test the DNA, and trace it back to a man in Sacramento County and a woman named Bonnie. From the Los Angeles Times and Wondery, this is part four of six of Man in the Window. The individual charged with murder and kidnapping in this case, Joseph D'Angelo, has not yet been tried or entered a plea. He and his lawyers declined to comment. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, reach out for help. In the U.S., you can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. Or you can chat anonymously with a hotline staffer by messaging the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network at online.rain.org. We'd like to express our gratitude to the women willing to tell their stories. Man in the Window was written and reported by me, Paige St. John, senior producer and editor is Karen Lowe, Associate producer is Casey Georgie. Original music by Allison Leighton-Brown. Music coordinator is Marcelino Vilpando. Sound design by Spoke Media. Our editors at the Los Angeles Times are Steve Clough and Shelby Grad. Executive produced by George Lavender. Marshall Louis and Hernan Lopez for Wondery.